Here, I've seen it. Hey everyone, we're going to get started. Um, I'm just going to plug here for a minute while we, uh, before Mark kind of takes point. If anybody's interested in a primary text, I, um, <laughs> I was kind of embarrassed when I realized I was walking down. I had a stack of books this big. Um, but if you want any recommendations, I'm happy to give them. Of course, Mark, he's got several upstairs. We have a section in the bookstore called Mark Genelette recommends, and there's some uh, some great pieces on Luther, particularly a biography by Han, uh, Heiko Obermann, and then um, a book he and I were just talking about by Oswald Bayer, which if you want to put your hat on um, and climb in and kind of return to it again and again and again, um, it is it is great. I mean, it is really a penetrating work. Um, accessible, but you're going to, you think, it's not a quick read. It's one that you really get to lean into. Chapters one through four are worth the whole book. Um, and eight and nine, by the way. Uh, but if you want a primary text of Luther, um, that's right. This is an excerpt. I like it. It's up in the store. Saw this. Um, Luther did two series of lectures on Galatians. He called it my Katie von Borov. That was his wife's name, and he had such a relationship with Scripture. He actually like spoke. This is my um, my love relationship um, with the book of Galatians, and this is a, a condensed part of his 1535, uh, he died in 1546. So this is sort of the mature Luther, you would say. Um, when he wrote his, theory, his book on Galatians, his commentary on Galatians, uh, which unabridged probably goes, what do you think, Mark, 600 pages or so? The one I have is 300. I have an abridged version, which is the, the, the most, that's the one in English that everybody knows. But he took one and he put it down, really accessible, 80 pages, I think a really lovely little book. If you want to, okay, I want to read Luther, not about Luther. This is one I would recommend because these are the actual words of Luther, obviously in English, uh, with a few um, sort of lift outs where it kind of puts it in a very readable, presentable form. I know some people would like that. And, uh, and it's really devotional. This is a time when a biblical commentary um, was actually a comment on Scripture and not just a comment on, okay, I've mastered the corpus, all of the body of literature about Romans, and so this is what so-and-so thought about it, and what so-and-so thought about it, and this is why they fought. And you ever actually like interact with the scripture itself? I don't know what you would say about that. Um, uh, but this is really a comment on scripture. Like, this is what Galatians is saying, and this is what it means. And even now, these 500 years later, um, I find some very, for me, um, it is a, it is a water in a desert. So I commend it. To you, if you like. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark. He's going to really take point, and I'm going to be the backup here. Yeah, put it on. Of course, Mark. Okay. All right. All right. Um, let me stick this on here. I have to tell a funny... You mentioned the bookstore. This is completely off-topic, Gil. Um, but but I... Uh, you know that Gil gives these book recommendations from the clergy every summer, right? Do you realize? And so he sends out an email. I think this was two summers ago. This shows the the kind way that Gil knows how to deal with people. I've learned from just observing Gil. So I did. I just thought it was any book that you like, but it's supposed to be a book that has this sort of theological sort of bent to it. We've never talked about this, right? So I really love John Gearock. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, John Gearock, who's a fly fishing writer. Do any of you guys know this guy? I mean, completely, I mean, nothing to do with the gospel or anything. So I send Gil this thing. I'm like, Gil, this is a great book. John Gearock, really funny, great read. And uh, very, very definitely, I didn't never, I never just clicked. He's like, well, w- maybe something a little bit more, the- you know, Christian in our nature. <laughs> I'm like, 
It's great. It's great. So, yeah, anyway, um, okay, let's pray and then we'll hop in. Father, thank you for your kindness to us and your mercies. They're new every day. And Lord, we're thankful that we've already been able to be together this morning to pray together and to worship, to confess our sins together, to reorient our understanding of who you are and who we are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, today's topic that Gil and I will sort of just, I guess, ping pong back and forth to one another is on Luther's legacy. Now, Luther's legacy, I mean, there's multiple points of entry that one could have on this. I've, I have a, a volume at my house uh, right now that's on my to-do list on the reading side of things, especially before this trip next summer by a man named Mark Greenhouse, I believe, um, entitled Christendom Divided. And it's basically a history of Europe during, um, I guess, 15th, the early early um, 16th century all the way into the middle uh, 17th century, which is where everything gets turned upside down. And a lot of that really can be traced from a socio-political standpoint um, to uh, the, the Protestant Reformation. And, and really the problems that, um, the, the good problems that arose because of the Protestant Reformation, if you think about the history of Europe, you, if you look at Europe and you think about the Holy Roman Empire and the problems that you had in medieval Christianity trying to negotiate the political struggle, the tug of war between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor and how those two were to be related. For any of you who've done reading, for example, in Dante or in, um, uh, uh, I guess, um, uh, medieval fiction and literature, poetry, you know, Dante was exiled out of Florence, never able to go back home because of his political views on the relationship between the Pope. He didn't like the Pope um, and um, and the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, the Holy Roman Empire really had as its seat what we consider now Germany, Central Europe. So, I mean, Germany was a significantly important and strategic location in all of the political battles that were going on and the religious battles that were going on during this period. And by the way, when you think about political violence or military violence vis-a-vis uh, -vis religious violence, um, you could not untangle those two, the one from the other, in, this, in the medieval period up into the early uh, 17th century. Um, for those of you who know something about the Thirty Years' War that happened in the early 17th century, it ravaged Europe. And a lot of it had to do with the, divide, the divides between Catholic Europe, Lutheran Europe, and Calvinistic Europe, and, and, it's, and some of it, frankly, from, in retrospect, is a shame that, that, that it happened, but multiple lives were lost. It was a very long war, and the Treaty of Westphalia wasn't signed until 1648, so you're looking at um, a significant amount of time before things kind of began to settle down uh, in this new Europe post um, the Thirty Years' War. So we're, we're not talking about that this morning, um, although I would say those, those aspects are fascinating, strictly from a, from a historical and a socio-political phenomenon, what happened in Europe during this time, that many of it can stem back to the foment caused by this man, both positively and some of it might be negatively too, um, is a very fascinating topic. And, and it's something that I'm assuming we'll talk about on our tour. Gil and I, though, we, we're, we're all left feet in that conversation. And I, I mean, I, I know I am. And I, I, anyway, now, we're more happy to talk about Luther's um, theological legacy, which is something that matters to us, and I think both of us are endeared to Luther's theological legacy in multiple ways. I have several po talking points. I doubt we'll get to all of them this morning, 
but several talking points that I'd like to sort of work through, and Gil has some things he's going to want to say as well, um, that might kind of highlight some of the central aspects of Luther's theological legacy. The first one is the obvious, and it's the one that if you're around here and you put a needle or you poke a prick anywhere in the life of Advent Church, you're going to get language that relates to justification by faith alone apart from the works of the law. This is Luther's great discovery, isn't it? You heard Gill, I thought so well, last week, identify Luther's monastic view on God. I didn't love God, I, I hated God, right? Why? Because I knew that God's righteousness was a juridical righteousness. It demanded something from me. It was accusation against me. And I didn't love him, I hated him. Um, I sat in on a, a lecture years ago by Graham Tomlin, who I think we might end up getting books for people about uh, from Graham Tomlin on Luther. And Graham made a very interesting point. And again, I don't know if I'd pursue this whole cloth, but I do think there's something to it. He said, in many ways, the Protestant Reformation had as its, as its source Luther's desperate attempt to find a God that he could love and worship. I want a God that I can love, not a God that I hate. And, and, and his monastic God was a God that he hated. And where did he find a God that he could love? He found a God that he could love in the Bible. And that, that's significant, I think. Getting into the Bible, the Bible, and the way in which the Bible does its work, decentered Luther's basic notion about himself and his understanding of God and reoriented him to understand that God looks on him in Jesus with a smile, not a frown. Um, so if you look up here, oh, not that guy. Um, We'll do the chronic. This one right here. So th this is an altarpiece um, that is in a church in Weimar. And again, I'll put a little plug in for our trip. We'll spend, I think, two or three nights in Weimar. Three nights in Weimar. Great city, by the way. Just wonderful city. Um, this is a, an altarpiece that was painted by Lucas Cronach, the elder, who was really in many ways the, the painter of the Reformation. He's a good friend of, of Luther's. Um, and it's in the, the um, St. Paul and St. Peter Kirka that's in the center of town. For those of you who've done any reading in philosophy in the 17th and early 18th century, Johann Gottfried Herder, um, Herder's a significant figure in the, in the development of romantic philosophy in uh, Germany during this time. That was, this was Herder's church here that he preached in. Um, but if you look up at this, I think this is a, a, a great il illustration of what Luther understands justification by faith alone to entail, right? Um, you, you, you see the scene here, Jesus hanging on a cross. And by the way, I, um, the church was being remodeled when I was there, so I had to see this from a distance. But it's, it's hard to really communicate how big this is. This is a big painting, right? So it kind of overwhelms you from an artistic and a sensory experience standpoint. But you can see here, right? There's Luther. Um, and the fellow standing next to him is Lucas Cronach the Elder, I, I believe. And there they are. He's got his hands there. And you can see the butt. I mean, it's kind of a little provocative, you know. The, the medieval painters and early Renaissance painters like this kind of thing, I guess. Um, but look, look at the blood, right? Um, that blood is spurting. And you know where it's, it's heading, hitting? I mean, if it landed, it's going to hit Luther right on his forehead, okay? Um, which is exactly where Luther would want it to land, I believe. Um, there's a lot about this painting that's worth reflecting on, namely um, Luther's theology of the Eucharist is present here. Um, where are Cronach and, and, um, 
and Luther. They're actually there at the cross experiencing the death of Jesus Christ, His body and His blood, and they're there. Um, that's a very, I think, good understanding of how Luther understood our participation in the Eucharist to be a very real participation in the death and in the uh, of our Lord. But you also see here, and I think this is the part that I'm emphasizing with justification by faith, their, their role as passive agents. They're passive agents. Um, they're not doing something here. They're not trying to make salvation happen. They're standing under the foot of the cross, and the cross is doing its work on them by allowing the blood of Jesus to go on them, and they're not doing anything to make that happen. I mean, I hate to be so... Um, this isn't very uh, uh, subtle, but it's squirting on them, right? In other words, they're, 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 not, they're not sort of trying to maneuver it toward them. They're not maneuvering their body to get under it. It's the, the nature of the blood of Jesus is to attack them on their own and their passive agents. So what I think you see, frankly, with Luther's, and for, not just Luther's, but the, the Protestant notion of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, is a big, fat no to any form of human self-actualization or self-justification. The turn to the self is told is, 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 uh, it's put an end to that in the sense that you are now a passive agent and your identity is primarily um, a passive one. Gil, you want to hop in on any of that? Um, yeah, the emphasis on the passivity I'll go to this, and I've shown this in my class, some of my classes before. This comes out of that book that I mentioned earlier, the one you put your hat on, your thinking hat, the Oswald Bayer book. This is a sculpture called The Listener, um, a church in Essen, Germany, where Luther very helpfully really emphasizes this passivity, um, what he would call, um, what Bayer translates, what Luther called the receptive life that we receive. What do we receive? We receive very specifically the Word of God, the living Word of God, which creates rather than defines that which is pleasing to it, comes out of Luther's Heidelberg Catechism. And so with the uh, sort of the, uh, the elongated hands and ears really emphasizing the reception of the spoken Word, and not just any Word, but the living spoken Word of Scripture, uh, Luther, as I said last uh, week, um, he would describe theology as what we would now call biblical interpretation. That's not the way they talked back then, but that's what they would, would mean. And he would say it in a very um, stark way uh, that uh, uh, when, he, when he said a, a phrase, experience makes a theologian, for instance. He didn't say, oh, just the experience of walking in the fields like with John Girock or something like that, fly fishing in a river. That's not what Luther meant by experience. Not experience of of a, I wasn't just feel good, we're all together in the room, we're all sort of nice feelings with small group or with community or something else like that. That's not the experience. Luther would say very specifically the experience of hearing the Word of God, hearing the living Word of Scripture, which falls on us. And an illustration that I think you would love to have would be Lazarus. What, a, what activity did Lazarus as a dead man have? Zero. You know, he didn't sort of say, okay, I'm going to deposit something in here so you can bring me back from the dead. The, uh, the living word of Christ, Lazarus come forth, landed on the dead ears of Lazarus and brought 
him back to life, just like the valley of the dry bones. And so this emphasis on the experience which makes a theologian, a theologos, one who hears the word of God, logos, word, theos, God, a theologian, one who experiences the word of God as we live, die, and are damned. And that's the way that God encounters the sinning human being. I don't know if you want to go here or not. Um, uh, living, as we are brought back to life through the gospel. Um, dying, as the work of the law kills us. Um, the law kills and the gospel quickens. And then that whole experience, which is very peculiar to Luther, and which kind of went dormant for about 300 years, this experience of what, uh, what Luther in that translation called being damned, this unfectum, this spiritual assault, this attack, he would even say, like Jacob crossing the jack. That was, uh, that was uh, Luther's favorite illustration from Genesis 32. Um, this experience of an oppressive force that's not quite the same thing as the law telling me who I am, that I have no agency in myself, something out there completely other, like innocent suffering, a hurricane, you know, a miscarriage, a death, a loss of a job, uh, just a dark night of the soul, those kinds of things. That was Luther's entrance. He said that's actually an experience, an encounter of God. And this is so vital because we flee from that to the God that we hear revealed to us in the good news, the proclaimed euangelion, the good sound of the news which falls on our dead ears. And so that's where Luther really ties up, I think, in a very tight way, a very pastoral word. I'm going to pitch it back to you. Your good question last week. Are people still asking that question? Is Luther's question, how do I stand before... Uh, as a sinning human before a justifying God? Is that a, is it a, I don't know, we want to go here, but it's a good question to ask. Is, are we asking different questions these days? Um, and maybe if we're asking questions, maybe we're asking the wrong question. Did Luther have the right question? That's what, anyway. So I can go off on that too, but I won't. I just love this as it's tied to that, where uh, John the Baptist showing the, both the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and then pointing, and this is the one who dies for you, where the blood's going straight on chronic, and where the risen Lord, defeating death and the devil, looks straight out at us, as does Cranick, the, the painter, the one in the middle with the beard, both inviting us in. So this is us. This is us. Um, the risen Lord for me, uh, and the blood for me. Um, it, uh, it clears out everything else. This is a picture of passive righteousness, which is what his letter of Galatians, his commentary on Galatians really emphasizes as well. Why is St. Dorothy a dragon? Where's that? On the left. Over here in the red? Mm -hmm. That's the risen Lord. What? Yep, yep, that's um, that's Christ, the risen Lord. You can see behind there, um, wish I had a laser pointer, uh, just behind Christ's right knee, you can kind of see the empty tomb coming out of the tomb, defeating death, and, which is the skeleton and Satan shoving the sword right through the the, the mouth of Satan. You can see behind there, we'll see all this, of course, in Weimar. Uh, you can see Adam running, uh, and he's being prodded with the same spear by death and the devil. Um, so, uh, this is obviously heavily exacted. I really like this kind of art. Um, on the left hand side, this is. Yeah, the they're both Christ. Yeah. And the Lamb. The symbol, yeah. The Optimus Day, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is the one 
said that, and that's, that's John just to the left of Jesus on the cross. So, I don't know what that is in the back. Do you know it? Angel, and then, you know, coming to the shepherds in the field. That's Dorothy. You can get a lot of information. <laughs> you don't know that. Oz is actually saying that. That's funny. Yeah, we get Mark. That's um the bronze. Uh, still up here. Mark the time in. Oh. Um, what numbers? Eighteen. Where is that? The story of the serpents. Um, remember the serpents. Where one of the plagues, a plague of serpents, went through the camp because they were unfaithful and they bit everybody. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take a bronze serpent and put it on a statue. And everybody who looks upon the bronze serpent, the very thing which would be our death, all of them should be saved. The Gospel of John picks that up, and the Reformers really loved that image. You'll see this in a lot of printings, paintings, for instance. That story from Numbers all the way back through John where the son, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, John said, and they who look to him shall be saved. So the, what was the instrument of our salvation, our death, the cross, um, got hidden beneath the opposite, is Luther's phrase, uh, shall actually be our salvation, our very life. And so the encampment is, is uh, numbers in John. The one back behind, above that? This is right in here. This is the angel Gabriel coming to the shepherds. Um, and they, they pack a lot in here. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And this is the one. That's what he's trying to say. Um, so that's the, uh, the Annunciation coming to. You can kind of see that. It is huge. I've not seen this. I'm looking forward to this. I've not been to Weimar before. Um, so I can't wait to look here. I hope we just sort of sit there and kind of have a devotional time. Yeah. Uh, the significance of Christ holding the sword, is that some kind of uh, connection with a, a more militant Messiah? Uh, sure. Christus Victor, as it was later called, that Christ comes to defeat the world, the flesh, the devil, law, sin, and death. With a sword? With a sword. Um, this terrible Swiss sword as it became yeah. later. Um, Christ in Revelation, the one who comes back on the white horse and defeats. But here they tie it, I think, because you can see Satan prodding Adam, that being you and me, into the fires of hell with, if not the same sword, and something very much like that. And so then it turns it back. We, you know, make no mistake, there is somebody who's in charge, uh, and he wields the sword, which is the word of God, which proceeds from his mouth. All that imagery from Revelation becomes very, very active. It's actually a spear, though, isn't it? It is, yes. Spear. Sword. Um, they pick it out. Mark, anything? Man, I, I, I thought that was fascinating. The will or anything else. There's just um, layers and layers and layers of these things. One thing I think is very interesting about paintings like this as well, if you look at the, I don't think I'd ever noticed, frankly, that that was the, you know, the camp scene of, in numbers. But if you look closely at it, um, the people are dressed in sort of 16th century garb. Yeah. You'll find that, you'll find those kind of what we technically call anachronisms. You'll find those all over paintings from this period as well. 
I actually think those anachronisms are instructive. I mean, you've seen, for example, paintings where the tombs at the, uh, the the guard at the tomb of Jesus they look like Ponce de Leon or something like that. Well, the, certainly Roman guards didn't wear that. Um, but I think it shows something very much about the way in which they read the Bible during this time. And I, I try to use this actually in the way in which I talk with my students. We're on the far side of the 18th century. We can't pretend that we're not. We and that during that century there was a rise of historical consciousness where history. And understanding history as its own discipline became something that was really part and parcel now of the humanities. That wasn't the case before the 18th century. History departments didn't exist on their own. They were sub-disciplines of theology or, or philosophy. Um, but now we kind of think of, term, of, of books like the Bible primarily in historical categories. And that's why a lot of people read the Bible and they think my first problem I've got to deal with is the problem of its historical and cultural distance. And I don't downplay the significance of that. I mean, what's a cow of Bashan? What's a, you know, I mean, there are things that we just have to figure out what they are because they're not in our backyard. But I would say that was not the interpretive posture, first and foremost, of someone like Luther and, and frankly, the medieval interpreters that came before him. They read the biblical narratives and they saw themselves in it. Um, you've mentioned the Jacob story several times. I mean, I, I, wrestling with God at the river Jabbok. I mean, I, I find Luther's reading on that in Genesis to be absolutely fascinating because when Luther's reading that scene in Genesis, he looks very closely at that text and he sees himself there. That's me. That's not Jacob. That's me at the riverbank. Um, that's not the ancient Israelites that are there wrestling with faith and belief and doubt. That's me in that story. That's right. So it's a sense of time becomes collapsed. Um, I just and I wasn't planning on talking on this, but I do think it's very important for the way in which we think about the Bible and how the Bible begins to shape the way in which we view the world and not vice versa. That's a, that's not a natural instinct, frankly. Um, but we come into the world of the Bible anyway. I, I thought that was that was interesting. Um, let, let me talk a little bit more here. Point got my hand out. Um, point number two, and this feeds off what Gill was saying on the nature of sin. Um, and the nature of what it means to be a human. Um, you know, for, for Luther, sin at its essence is unbelief. That, I think if you pushed him into a corner and asked him, again, I'm leaning heavily on buyer here, but if you ask him, what is sin? Sin is at its core um, unbelief, which means the flip side of that emphasizes this chronic notion, right? That faith is a faith that rests itself on the promises of God. And that's a term that I think you'll find really from the beginning to the end in Luther's writings, this emphasis on promise, promiso. Um, God makes a promise. And in fact, Luther will encourage you, I don't know if we'll get to this today, but in, in his theology of prayer, Luther will encourage Christians when they pray to actually, I don't know if this is the right way to frame it, but to use the promises of God as leverage against God when you're praying with him. In other words, remind God that He made a promise to you um, and that He has to hold true in it, knowing sure well that He will. Um, so the promises of God are central um, to Luther's theology, and that is God has promised us in our baptism, right, which is a commitment of God to us, and He's promised us in the saving work of Jesus that He is for us, that He has claimed us, that He's made the move to us before we made the move to him. That's why I love this notion that Gill's emphasize about the human agent is primarily a hearing agent before he or she is a speaking agent. We hear. We hear the word of the Lord we receive. I think that's very, very important. Here's a couple of quotes that I wanted to read to you from 
um, buyer. I kind of get into this. The heart of sin is not to trust God's promises, to become more an agent defined by speaking than by hearing, by activity more than by reception. So can I read you a couple quotes? I don't really like when people read me quotes, but I'll, I'll, um, I'll try to um, make this uh, um, clear. This is something the buyer says about Luther's notion of faith in relationship to doubt. I think this is important. The faith that is tempted can also dispute with God and thus express doubts. And the very fact that it brings its questions to God as lament. Now, where would Luther have warrant for this? Let's just say the whole book of Psalms, right? Open the book of Psalms anywhere, and you're going to find people in the book of Psalms saying things that frankly would make us uncomfortable on a Sunday morning, right? So they can, faith can bring questions to God as lament. And this is a very helpful distinction. But this doubt becomes unbelief when it separates itself from the relationship with God and expresses itself with a view towards justifying the self and stabilizing the self. I think the pastoral ramifications of that are central when it comes to Luther's legacy. I have one illustration about this from a, a friend of mine, and I hate to use this because he's not an illustration, he's a friend. Um, but he began to have significant battles with the faith. We, we went to seminary together, we graduated together, began to have significant philosophical questions about the faith. And for any of you who've sort of read in modern philosophy up until the current moment, right? well, there's been some really, as, as David Bentley Hart would say, there's been some really great atheists around. <laughs> um, the current atheists aren't really all that good, unfortunately, but some of the ones in the history of the church have been really very, very good atheists. And my friend was beginning to struggle with, I would say, some fundamental issues as it pertained to the faith. And I remember talking with him on the phone and saying, okay, um, I won't say his name, but okay, friend, um, I get it. I mean, these are, difficult, these are difficult issues that betray easy solutions, and neither one of us want a pablum answer to this. But, you know, do you want to wrestle with these things inside the life of the church and inside the life of faith? Or do you want to wrestle with it outside? And for him, it became too straining. He said, I've, I've got to leave whole cloth. And he's left, whole, and I think actually he's come back to the faith now, but that's a long story. But I think that's what Luther is saying. Faith and doubt are not antipode the one to the other. The question is, where is faith going to be located in the struggle? And where's doubt going to be located in the struggles with faith? And this is where Luther would say, there are dangers down the road if you leave the realm of faith or you leave the realm of the promises of God to go work out your doubts on your own as an act of self-justification or self-actualization. I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. I think he's raised some significant questions about that. So I find it pastorally helpful to say struggling with the faith on the philosophical level or the existential level is not the opposite of being a person of faith. Um, but it's where those struggles sort of reside that I think are, are central to um, the continued wrestling with that. You want to come in on any of this, Gil? Um, I think it's a good way just to make sure we talk about simul uses of the context. Yeah, okay. Somewhere along the way. Yeah, good. Now, how? <laughs> so, simul uses of the context. When Paul Walker was here before he left, we and I had a conversation once. It's like, you know, I'm a mission Paul. Yeah, I know. Um, what words are you going to take? with you 
So that's a good question. What are words for common parlance? That was the word we used. We want to make sure at the Advent and are also at Christ Church in Charlottesville. And uh, first on our list was Simul Eustace at Akatua. We said, I mean, where, we, we kind of looked back, like, aren't we, we're just weird. We're strange people. You know, we just sort of let this words trip off our tongue. Oh, yeah, Simul Eustace at Akatua. You know, no other church, at least Episcopal Church, does that. But I'm glad we do. Simul Eustace at Akatua. That was a long backtrack. Um, at once, simultaneously. There's a whole lot of Luther that works simultaneously, which is good psychology, by the way. Um, simultaneously, just and sinner. So simultaneously, believing and unbelieving. Simultaneously, faithful but doubting. Simultaneously, sinner but saint. Simultaneously, uh, uh, dead and alive. Part of me. This is a psychology. Um, which is sometimes psychology calls parts language. Is Rachel one of my psychologist friends? Um, you know, part of me this, but part of me that, and that's where pastorally can be so helpful because then it's not this uh, where your friend or somebody else doesn't misinterpret. And this goes to law and gospel. The idea that just because the law or the word of God, which is holy, right, and good, issues a command and describes an obligation uh, doesn't necessarily imply ability. That's a really helpful word. Hmm. Command and obligation do not imply ability. Hmm. Of course, I shouldn't cut it. I know that. It's a command. It's an obligation. And yet I do. Simultaneously sinner and saint, because that does not place my saintliness, my saintliness, which is simply that I am set apart, chosen, uh, beloved by God. The fact that I don't do what I'm commanded to do doesn't place that in um, in jeopardy. Time, a little bit of time. Um, I think that's also the entrance to Luther's understanding of the Trinity. In fact, I mean Trinitarian because it's in the Holy Spirit that comes along and is the agent is the place as the, the relationship between the sinning human and the justifying God occurs in the dialogue between the two, that's the Holy Spirit. That's where Luther would locate, he liked assigning locations, um, that's where Luther would locate the Holy Spirit's work, his vivifying work, where we apprehend the sometimes way it's put, um, that which is done for me, apart from work. I don't have to muster up enough belief. Your friend doesn't have to have to muster up enough belief with an accurate understanding of who I am uh, to to uh, to generate a fiction, to generate some sense, whether it's felt or actual, that I'm okay. Actually, freeze. And again, the Psalms would be there. I'm going to be quiet after this. Freeze us, the freedom of a Christian, to have an honest interchange with God to command God to be faithful to his promise, even as I am not. That's very brash. And it's good to remember that although we talk about that, some, some of us at the Advent fairly often, that's, um, that's somewhat, that, that's a, I think that's fair, that's a Lutheran legacy. Um, it's a Lutheran way to think about our relationship to God, that kind of um, interchange. I don't know if that made sense. I felt like I wanted it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Would you clarify? Yeah. No, I think that's yeah. great. Do we, how, what, what, are we, are we up on the bell? Do we want to let people ask some questions now? They want to? You want to fire some questions around for Gil? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Bueller? Um, 
Well, well let me, like, can I just say one fu- uh, thing, and then we'll just see. Um, I was, we were going to talk a little bit about Val. Save us. Oh, yeah, Liz. Sorry. Well, I was a little troubled. I think it's in the email articles that talks about sin after baptism. How do you reconcile? What does that talk about? Sin after baptism? But the way in which it's framed, it's troubling. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the articles, I love the phrase, which is why I know it. I'm no, no expert on the articles, but it says, Yea, sin doth continueth even amongst the regenerate. That we regenerate, that we're made anew, we're, we're vivified, brought back to life um, uh, through being plunged underneath the waters of death, which is baptism, and raised to life in Christ. So it's right here. Uh, Anglicanism is very Lutheran in what you would call it soteriology. Got that from Ashley Knoll. Uh, Soteriology is how we're saved. So it's the sinning human and the saving God, which means simul justus et peccator is part of a good, robust soteriology that even after baptism, where the promises are sure, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and he is your God. He had a possessive pronoun on there. Lord, your God. Is, uh, is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sin does not change that. The fact that after baptism, and of course placed in 16th century you know, scholasticism and Roman Catholic, you know, what was Roman Catholic doctrine at the time, that was a big deal. Of course, it's still a big deal. You know, Can I really still come to church after what I did this week? Is that okay? Or do I need to get it all together before I come back? That's still a very active question I think we're asking. So I don't know if that gets to what you're saying. I mean, you can talk about baptism in terms of dogma, um, which is good. I love doing that. Or just more sort of in real life, you know, what what does all this mean? I mean, is there a promise that really does fall on my ear that um, lets me go to sleep at night? Or as I am awoken at 2.30 in the morning, um, Michael Sandsbury's great piece, which I just read yesterday in, a, in the Advent magazine, comes to mind. Uh, what hope do I have? Can I, can I find, can I find relief? Can I find peace? Is that what, is that kind of the vein you're asking? I don't think so. I think I'm, I think I'm answering a different question. <laughs> um, I'd have to remind myself of the article in, in specificity. I do think the way in which the 39 articles frames the relationship of faith and good works is probably, I, I, I'm not sure it can be bettered, in my own opinion on that. Because it clarifies some misconceptions on both sides of the on the aisle. That was one of the points we were going to talk about today. And we just didn't get to it. But I do think a Lutheran legacy for the Protestant Church is a proper ordering of faith and good works. Another way of looking at the Protestant Reformation is to make a claim that at the core of the Protestant Reformation is trying to come to terms with a proper understanding of good works and the life of faith, um, and that it all become disordered. So you know, Luther has a very clear conception that there is no such thing as faith that does not have concomitant with it good works that flow from that. Um, faith and bad works. Faith and bad works. And the other thing that the 39 article says as well, and this is the part that I think makes, it, it makes modern, um, I would, I would, this would have made Erasmus uncomfortable in the 16th century, and I think it makes modern um, humanists as well very uncomfortable when the 39 articles basically pull the rug out of any good works done apart from faith. 
In other words, it's and Calvin makes a distinction between sort of the life of faith, regeneration, being a Christian, and the ordering of society. The kind of thing that David Brooks does all all the time in the New York Times. I'm like, go for it. I prefer a society like that. Let's order this thing so that we're not killing each other in the streets and we have some modicum of respect and proper civil discourse. That's great. But the reformers would be very clear to say that has nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing. Um, So if you think that your good works done apart from faith do anything to assuage um, or to give you a proper standing with God, you need to think again. And this is the part where it actually, the 39 articles actually go on the offensive. In fact, they actually serve your damnation. That's the part that we kind of go, Ugh, you know, it's getting hot in the room, right? Um, they serve, but, but he goes on to say, the articles go on to say, but those good works that are done in faith are pleasing to God. And I think the only kind of works that are done in faith that are pleasing to God are ones that are done from this posture right here. I think that, and I think the 39 Articles was frankly ordering that very much in a way in which Luther would conceive of the relationship of faith and good works. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I, I don't know that turn of phrase. Do you know that turn of phrase? Say, I, say it again. Could, could it be. Sounds like him. Because he, he does a lot, but he would also, in another place, say, you know, he'd call him gamble, you know, maggot ridden. I mean, he'd get really colorful very quickly. <laughs> yeah. But in the other time, he talked about the beautiful yeah. works of the yeah. unbeliever. And so he kind of invited yeah. people. He's got a famous them. line where he says, and whenever you start to feel really good about yourself, take a long, hard look in the mirror. And if you look long enough, you'll feel those donkey ears that are there. <laughs> you know, so he's really, he, he doesn't want to, yeah. Well, I think we need to, are we done? I think we are. Close well, let's, we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for the, the legacy of, a, of a, a man who thought and felt deeply after you, and we're grateful, left, left the lasting impact on the Western world. And, and Lord, I pray that you'll help us to continue to come to terms with Luther, uh, not as an end unto itself, but because we want to wrestle and understand your Bible, your word, as it orders and shapes our life and our loves. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.